You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, just a little housekeeping announcement. As we inch closer and closer to the glorious days of summer, we're going to be releasing our episodes bi-weekly, as we've done in the past, uh, between June and September. Right. And what's great, though, is that now we have both shows, Bible for Normal People and Faith for Normal People, so you actually will get weekly episodes, if you can do the math. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, put the puzzle pieces together in your mind. We have so many great topics and guests this summer. We can't wait for you to hear them, but we wanted you to know the expectations change. We always want to give you a heads yeah. up. And it, we love you. It's going to be weekly, so it is a change. I'm already confused. That's what's happening, folks. So we're really excited to have an episode every week during the summer. Today on Faith for Normal People, it's just me. I'm talking about finding your voice with Ali Henney. Ali is the author of the new book, I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You, which is coming out June 20th. She's a writer, a speaker, and an advocate minister, vice president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, which is an organization committed to encouraging, engaging, and empowering black Christians toward liberation from racism. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where Pete will jump back in and will reflect on the episode. Asserting your holy hell no, it's not just about the situation. It's for yourself, even if it does stir up trouble. I think that it's more important that we draw a line in the sand, essentially, and say, thus far and no more, that's enough. I've experienced enough injustice. I've seen enough oppression. I've been harmed enough. And so I am not going to allow this to continue. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, Ali, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and have this conversation. Thank you for having me. So this may be a weird first question, but I wanted to ask it this way. What's the history of your voice? And, and what I mean by that is if your voice could share, what would be the main events that, that shaped its story as you think about your voice and what it's been through over the years? 
That is a, a very unique question. But yes, my voice does, in fact, have a history. And that's actually something that I cover a bit in my book, I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. And so, of course, you know, I think that we all have those moments in our lives that that sort of shape us. And of course, you know, using the first time that I used my voice was when I was born and came out of my mother's womb and was crying. And of course, that's that's the voice or whatever, but I don't go that far back. But for me, the history of my voice maybe is in some ways kind of fraught as a person that's relatively shy and introverted. Um, I was the youngest girl in my family. My I was raised in, in an extended family, which means that I had my parents and then I, I have a sister who's several years older than I am. But I was also raised with aunties, uncles, big cousins, that sort of thing that were responsible for me and responsible for my life. And so for the first several years of my life, I was the youngest girl in my family. And so kind of being one of the babies in the family, there's always this thing, this notion of not being taken seriously. Uh, Whenever you have people who are older than you, who are, are peers, but are several years older than you, So I kind of started out with that. And then as I grew, my grandmother, and I talk about this, she had had an illness. She was diagnosed with cancer whenever I was in late elementary school. And so from that sort of sprang all these just different things that happen whenever you're dealing with a person who is a close family member that is terminally ill. And sort of within that, I really honed the sense of of what injustice was, um, mostly just because of how, and my, and my family, you know, they're great people, but you're just dealing with this horrible tragedy, right? You're just dealing with your mom, your grandma, your mother-in-law, somebody who's just the solid, uh, stable rock of your family, them being ill and their life coming to an end. And that sort of makes everybody's emotions and stuff very raw. And so there were times whenever stuff would just get blown out of proportion. And so it was sort of within that, with my voice, I realized that whenever, you know, I would try to talk, try to talk back to some of the things that I felt like that were happening that were unfair, sometimes even more unfair stuff happened. And just that those kind of general feelings of, again, not feeling taken seriously, not feeling heard. So then I also think about a time whenever I was in fifth grade, I made a bet or rather a bet was made with me that I couldn't go the whole week without talking. Um, Some boys in my grade made that bet with me. And you can read about the results of that bet and how that went. Um, It doesn't go the way you think it might have gone. But there was this element of feeling silenced and, and peers, you know, same age peers, not really like wanting to engage with me because of being perceived of being too loud, being too much, doing too much. And so that was an aspect that was really kind of a moment that I pinpoint in my life where I felt like I was being silenced because I was a a loud Black girl. And that was something that I carried with me for a long time. And as I've grown and and grown up, and even as a young adult, as someone in my teens and 20s and late 20s, and now um, I'll be 38 this year, um, but really through a lot of my 20s even, I felt like 
that whenever I saw or experienced injustice, that I did not have a voice. And that sort of juxtaposed with the fact that I was in ministry for a long time, and I guess I still am in ministry, but talking about and being in my 20s and stuff, I was a youth pastor, I was a preacher, all these other things that sort of require you to to use your voice in all these contexts that require one to use one's voice and doing that, but then also the double-edged sword of being in a profession, in a vocation where you use your voice, but at the same time, your voice is being silenced by various different types of oppressions. And there's and there's more that I could say about that. And that's maybe a bit of a meandering answer to your question there. But I guess that maybe the top line thing to say is that the history of my voice is one of using my voice, of being a person that is vocal, but also within that being vocal, there being tension and there being moments in my life, certain areas of my life where I felt silenced. One of the reasons I'm so interested in this topic is that, you know, I'm also a family business advisor and I work in a lot of family systems where women in particular feel like they don't often have a voice, that they're just not listened to, they're dismissed. But one of the things in those systems that actually comes up quite a bit as well is something that you said earlier, and I thought maybe you could talk more about it from your personal experiences. You said, sometimes when we speak up, more trouble can come. Whether that's speaking about injustices or, again, in, in the case of like family systems, it's often like, I don't want to cause trouble I don't want to be a troublemaker. And sometimes speaking up is seen as being a troublemaker. And so it's better to just let things go than to try to speak up because we learn through the years when we speak up, more trouble can come. So can you say more about that in your experience? Because I think that's a real fear for people. And sometimes it's legitimate because more trouble does come, but maybe sometimes it's worth it. What's your experience been with that? So I think that something that we should acknowledge here is just the very real function of sexism. We can talk about in family systems, and I think that that's often where those things are reinforced, Mm -hmm. where those things are taught, and then those things from the family system go out into the broader society. But there is a very real function of sexism, of misogyny, and then whenever you start talking about race. So for me, as a Black woman, there's another added layer of that, where first of all, you know, there's these myths and stereotypes stereotypes about women talking too much about how mm. and so and so that's something that I think is really interesting that the the too much aspect of it so it's like women talk a lot and supposedly like compared to men as if men are the default and a lot of that is myth and is whatever something that I just was I recently was reading something talking about how the perception of women talking is more than like the reality. So for example, if you have a meeting, if you create a situation where you have men and women together and they're talking and sharing ideas, women will be perceived to be talking. I want to say it's like three times more than what they were actually talking. So that's just kind of an, an interesting thing to think of. So bringing that back to what you said, I think that people are often socialized 
to think about. I think that, again, you know, that very real function of sexism, of misogyny, of patriarchy is to define people by whatever the norms are of the dominant group. And then whenever people don't measure up to those things, then they're cast off as, well, this isn't right. If we think that you talk more than you should, then there's something wrong with you. And so I think it then becomes very difficult, at least in in my life, it became very difficult for me at times because there was this perception that I was taking up more space than I should. And as a person that, you know, I'm an introvert, I'm rather shy, but in circumstances, you know, I can definitely come alive and and can be very vocal and can be very passionate and, and all those sorts of things. And so what I found was that people didn't like that. And over the course of my life, there were times over people, sometimes they felt intimidated by it. Sometimes they felt threatened by it. Sometimes they felt frustrated by it. Sometimes they thought going into a situation, they thought, oh, well, there's this black woman. Well, she must not know anything. She must not whatever. And then whenever I was the person in the room who had my stuff together the most, I often would experience just consequences from that. So people being irrationally angry at me for simply just existing in the space and, and sharing and sharing my opinion and, and all those sorts of things. And I think that it's very early that we become socialized then to be quiet or to try to tamp ourselves down and to make ourselves smaller because whenever we speak up, there are consequences. And so, like I said, you know, a moment ago that I learned in my life that people are going to see me as too much. So if I come in and if I right off the bat seem like I have my stuff together too much, then that could actually anger someone who is intimidated by that. And so I learned that, well, you know, I need to kind of sit back and need to let other people, and and I don't mean this in like a way, because we, of course, we, we all have to make adjustments in order to be like a compassionate and ethical person, right? So there's like adjustments that we make that are just like, I think just kind of normal adjustments of I'm not going to sit here and talk for the meeting is scheduled to be 50 minutes and I'm going to sit in the meeting and talk for 45 minutes and then not let anybody else talk. Like that's not what I'm saying. So I think that you know, sometimes we can carry things to extremes. That's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes there can be consequences just for being the first person to speak up or taking up more space than people think that you should have. And so you learn to kind of make adjustments to yourself so that way you're hopefully not doing too much for the people who would tell you that you're doing too much. But then in essence, you're not able to bring your full self. You're not able to bring the fullness of your talents, to bring the fullness of your ability. And so I think that there's a very real function of sexism, of racism, of everything else there. But I think pulling that out more broadly, I think that people in general but sometimes with using our voice whenever it comes to issues. So like you bring up like within the family system, oh well, you know, I don't want to cause trouble. Well, I don't want to hurt relationships. I don't want to I don't want to make any type of stink that would upset the status quo. 
we learn that somewhere. And I think that sometimes we learn whether the intended lesson was there or not, that whenever we speak up, that sometimes there's always the risk of someone wanting us to hush because we, we said or did too much. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. You have this great concept in your book of the holy hell no. Can you talk more about what that is? Because in some ways, we're talking about taking up too much space, but there's also this other side of being able to say no in that as well. So how do those relate? What's this holy hell no about? Yeah, so your holy hell no is a boundary that essentially that you assert. So it's where whenever you're experiencing injustice, where you're experiencing wrong or whatever, that you take a moment and you're just like, no, this isn't it. No, not just not just no, but hell no. Like I don't want any more of this injustice. I don't want to be silenced anymore. And that's the moment where one can find their voice in the midst of injustice. And so I think that that's an important concept that sometimes 
we experience injustice, we experience harm, we experience all these different things in our lives. And there's a point when we sort of can sit back and just think, well, if I just take this, if I just keep putting myself into boxes, if I just sort of keep being quiet, if I just keep taking the mistreatment or keep lumping everything that's happening, it'll eventually get better. But sometimes stuff doesn't get better. And sometimes, you know, you can sit and you can be quiet in your own harm, where people are doing things that are upsetting to you, that are harming you, that are diminishing you as a person, that are taking away from your dignity and your right to exist. And we have a choice to make in those moments. We can either shut up. We can either say, well, I'm just going to be quiet about it and I'm just going to kind of let this blow. Or we can say no. And we can push back. And so your holy hell no is whenever you assert that boundary and you decide, nope, I'm going to push back. There's no more to this. And it seems like those moments can be scary because it could go either way in the sense, again, coming back to that phrase, when we speak up, more trouble can come, that sometimes the systems we're in, whether that's cultural, society, church, other institutions, or families, they really don't want you to speak up. They don't want you to take up more room. And so when you do speak up, more trouble would come. But sometimes when we speak up, it's also in a space where people want us to be ourselves and to take up that space. And that can be just a scary moment of, you know, the idea that if I just get smaller and smaller, it'll get better. But the alternative is there's a risk in speaking up that it could go well and it could be acceptable and it can be freeing and liberating, or it could be kind of the worst fear of like, no, they really don't want me to speak up and don't want me to take up any space. Have you had any experiences for you? Do you have any stories of where you were able to verbalize that holy hell no, not to yourself, but within a system or a group? And how did that go for you? Yeah, absolutely. There was a point where I was part of a church that um, was one of the most diverse churches in our city. There had been a racist incident that had happened that had triggered a group of Black women to sit down with the pastor and to discuss what had happened. The person who had done the thing was a longtime prominent member within the church. And so a group of us sat down with the pastor, and we really wanted to, to talk to him about that incident incident in particular. But then as we were talking about that incident in particular, of course, all of the years of racism and stuff that people had experienced within the church, those types of things started to come out. And so some things about the church culture that even though this was the most diverse church in our city and it prided the pastor and the, and the church, you know, prided itself on being the most diverse church and, and on having a, particularly a lot of Black people at the church, what came out was that Yes, Black people are here, we're part of the church, but we're also having some experiences that are not great. And so things went on. We, we ended up having um, a couple of different meetings with the pastor. And in one of those meetings, the meeting sort of took a turn that I didn't expect, that I don't really think anybody else in the room expected. And so as this was happening, and then there was some fallout and aftermath to the meeting, to how the meeting had turned out, I realized that I could no longer remain in 
that. I could no longer remain in that church. I could no longer remain in that space. And so for me, that was a moment where that was just, that was a hell no moment that there, there were some things that had happened. It was upsetting. It was devastating because I, I had been a part of that church for a long time, had been connected to that church for a long time. And so it definitely, there definitely was not just risk, but there was loss that happened because of that decision to speak up and to say, I don't think that what is happening here is is right. And so I'm going to say something about it. And I am going to adjust my life accordingly, because I don't think that it's clear that things are not going to change and that people are not willing to change. And maybe that's even that, that's even the better way to say it, is that it was clear that the feedback that all the different things that we were giving, that it wasn't really being taken to heart, even though that was what the lip service that was being paid to it. And so, yeah, so the asserting that boundary and just saying, no, no more. But something else that I want to add to that is that asserting your holy hell no, it's not just about the situation. It's not just about the thing that you're experiencing. It's for yourself. And so I think that, you know, even if it does stir up trouble, even if it does cause a problem, even if it does lead to issues further down the line, I think that it's more important that we say to ourselves and that we speak up for ourselves, that we that we draw a line in the sand essentially and say, you know, thus far and no more, this issue that's gone on, that's enough. I've experienced enough injustice. I've seen enough oppression. I've been harmed enough. And so I am not going to allow this to continue. And so whether that means exiting a space like I did with the church or or whether it simply means that you are no longer going to remain in certain relationships or remain affiliated with a certain group or whatever that looks like to you. I think that it's more than so being able to speak up, using your voice, it's more than just trying to change the situation. Of course, we hope that the situations that we're in will change, right? You know, we hope that whenever we speak up, that people will hear us, they will hear our pain, they will see our sorrows or even our our tears, and they will make an adjustment. That's the best case scenario. But sometimes the scenario doesn't come out in the best case. And so sometimes I think that for people who are speaking up and using their voice, Sometimes you just have to, it's the principle of the thing, right? It's the principle of someone has to say at some point that something is wrong. For me in my situation, there have been things that I had seen that, that you know, had dated back even more, more than a decade, some issues that I had seen and had experienced in this space. And I was just like, you know what? No, I cannot continue on here. God bless you. But like, I can't remain here. And so for me, just the act of using my voice and saying, nope, no thank you, can't be here, that was freeing. Was it sad? Was it difficult? Did it kind of you know, trigger some things, some circumstances that were difficult for me to walk through in the end? Absolutely. But I was able to walk away from that situation feeling 100% assured that I had done the right thing and that I had spoken up for myself, that I had spoken up even in the situation for some other things that weren't necessarily done directly toward me. And actually, there, there wasn't really anything that was done um, directly toward me. It was more of witnessing somebody else being mistreated where I just said, nope, 
sorry, I can't do this. This isn't okay. And the fact that you're also trying to hide this and not want to talk about it or whatever, I'm also not okay with that. And so sometimes it's just for you. It's not for anybody else, but for you to say, I've had these experiences and I'm just, I'm going to pick up my bag. I'm going to pick up my purse. I'm going to whatever and leave the situation. I think that's a a really important point to make on a number of levels. But one of the things I was thinking about is how often it can feel these issues and challenges we face as a society can feel overwhelming. Like what difference can I make? And so to see it as it makes a big difference internally for us when we can focus on that process, not just the result, that it may not change the situation, but it would change you. Like it creates that voice by speaking up again and again. It's it's like practice. It, it builds this voice where we feel like we matter, even if we can't change the, the overall situation. And then there's this also the sense of integrity of saying, well, when I look back, I feel like I did what I was supposed to do in that situation, again, regardless of whether or not it changed this macro or institutional injustice. But it seems like what changes those big things is a whole lot of individuals having a voice in those little ways. Exactly. I think that that's exactly what it is, is that, you know, we have these big movements that happen. Like if we think about the uh, racial reckoning that people call it that, that happened in 2020, where we sort of reached this critical mass of there had been enough police brutality. We had been in the house enough because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was sort of this perfect storm of, of things where a lot of people were upset all at one moment. And so that affected some change. Now, was it like big, massive change? No, a lot of it was symbolic change, very little structural change, but change did happen. And it was just sort of this catalytic moment where it started a lot of conversations that are continuing, that persist until this day. And sometimes what it takes is one person grabbing their hat and going and saying, you know what? Nope, sorry, can't deal with this. We're not going to take this. We're not going to tolerate this any longer. And sometimes that can create a chain reaction. And I think that you're exactly right, that sometimes it's not just everybody all of a sudden is going to get it all at one time and stuff is going to change. Sometimes it just takes a bunch of people making the decision that we are not going to engage with this oppressive thing anymore. And so we're going to get up, we're going to walk out of the room, we're going to say no thank you, then more and more people doing that. And then as speaking even at, at an institutional and structural level, that the, whenever enough people make a stink about something and enough people are leaving an institution and enough people are really shaking things up, people start to take notice. The powers that be start to take notice. They might not take notice whenever it's one person. They might not take notice, you know, whenever it's a couple of people, but there's going to be a point when people are going to start to take notice. And I think that even to that point that people show you who they are in that type of, of situation, in that type of moment. Because I think that people, people of conscience, people of integrity, they are going to look at It's not just that we upset one person, even though that should be good enough. It's not that we just upset one person and that one person said, oh, my goodness, people are being racist here. I got to go. And they leave. But whenever you see the pattern and there's a pattern of 
we aren't able to retain black people in this organization or black women are they're, they're dropping like flies. They keep you. Know, they come in and they go right back out. People, institutions, organizations, individuals of integrity would look at a situation like that and say, hmm, okay, you know, so we've had how much, so we'll just use a church as an example. So, you know, we have black people in our church, but like in the last six months, we've not retained a single black family. Like it's just a revolving door of black people in our church. Maybe there's something wrong with us. Or, you know, we had a group of people that we had a group of black leaders leave our church and they were vocal about why they left and now more people are leaving. An organization of integrity would say, hmm, we really need to examine that. We really need to look at why people are leaving. We need to listen to some of the feedback that we're getting as people are walking out the door because not everybody can, not, not certainly not all of these people are just a bunch of, of bitter betties who are just sitting around mad because of whatever. Maybe we are the problem. And people who have integrity will do that. People who don't have integrity, people who, who aren't operating above board, they will look at that type of movement and they will double down on whatever it is that they're doing. They will say, you know, that like, again, using the, using a church, not the church that I came from, but just the church in general as an example, you know, you have a church that maybe in six months they've seen massive turnover of all of the, the black individuals and, and families or whatnot in their church. And people are saying as they're going out, yeah, we're leaving because, you know, we don't feel welcome here. You know, we've experienced racism. We've experienced that. Like I said, integrity would examine it. People that don't have integrity are going to look at that and be like, oh, well, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. And they're going to find fault with people who are leaving. They're going to say, well, those people, you know, they're just they're not quite the caliber of people that we would want here anyway. Well, those people, well, they just they're troublemakers. They wanted to stir the pot. They wanted they were trying to make our church woke or whatever it is. And they'll find fault with the people who are speaking up and the people who are leaving rather than engaging in deep introspection and self-reflection and making change. And so ultimately, we as individuals may or may not have the ability to affect change on a broader, bigger institutional level. So again, you know, using a church as an example, we might not be able to sit with a pastor or an elder board or a deacon board or a vestry or whatever uh, your church polity looks like. You might not be able to sit down with those people and be like, okay, well, these are the issues. These are the problems. Here's why I'm leaving. Here's why people are going. You might not have the ability to do that, but the best amount of power that you might be able to have is to simply vote with your feet and say, well, I'm not going to be part of this institution anymore. And hopefully you doing that and you walking in your own integrity, it might be a catalyst for other people and for change. And like I said, you know, people of conscience are going to take seriously whenever people don't want to be associated with them anymore. And the reasons why they don't want to be associated have to do with ways that the person is doing harm or the institution or whatever is, is doing harm to others.
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a question that I, I wrestle with off and on. And for me, it's a, it's a question of wisdom. I, I haven't found the silver bullet here, but how have you learned to stay, and I want to be clear about the language I use here, to stay compassionate and kind. And, and I, I want to maybe distinguish that from being nice. How have you learned to stay compassionate and kind while also making sure that you're standing up for yourself and others, making sure that your voice is heard? Because sometimes that's a pretty, it goes with what we've said before, The the standard is subjective. So you're standing up for yourself and others and having a voice can often be seen as unkind and not compassionate just by the fact that you're doing it because it, you know, hurts someone's feelings or something. And that's not really your responsibility. And yet there does seem to be a need to, for ourselves, have a standard where we don't devolve into dehumanizing or being unkind or not compassionate of where people are coming from in these situations. How have you learned to navigate that space? Well, I think that for me, it's about being kind to who, being compassionate toward whom. I'm not saying that, well, because this person is doing something oppressive, I don't have to be kind or compassionate toward them. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I am prioritizing 
being kind and compassionate toward people who don't have a voice or whose voices are being silenced, being marginalized. For the people who have always been pushed out, they've always been pushed to the margins of society, of organizations, of institutions, of social relationships, whatever it is. And for me, that is where the bulk of my kindness and my compassion goes. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't practice care and kindness and compassion toward people who, who maybe, you know, have more privilege or whose voices are centered the most. Because I, I think, you know, Jesus said a little something about that. It's easy to love your friends, right? Like, it's easy to love the people who agree with you. It's harder to love people that you disagree with, or it's harder to love your enemies. But as far as my compassion and kindness and the energy that I put toward that, I reserve that more for the people who are being harmed by society. Now, you know, my unconditional love for people, where I try to walk in that in that sense of like agape love, that sort of unconditional, unfailing love of God toward people even that I would look at as this person has harmed me, this person has harmed people that I care about, this person holds views that are harmful toward the populations that I try to care for. Yes, I have that love for you as in I love you as an image bearer and I want to see you thrive and do better than what you're doing. But I, I wrestle with, I don't necessarily know if those people are worth the energy of like, I'm going to go out of my way to show you that I am being kind to you. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe the even better way to say this is that I perceive them as humans that are worthy of dignity and love or whatever. But to me, you know, kindness and compassion, those are acts, those are postures and mindset. And I would much rather place my energy toward people who need it. Mm-hmm. And so I say that, but you know, I also I also think about like if it came down to, oh, I've got to like, you know, show the love of God to someone, um, like a, you know, giving you like the million dollar answer to this question. But I think of like uh, my priest, I'm an Episcopalian, so I, I, have a, I have a priest. My priest is, a, is bivocational and he's a doctor. And my priest is a, is a black man. And he talked about how, I think it was during his residency, he had to care for a man who was very, very ill, who was covered in white supremacist tattoos. And so for him, it was like, oh, my goodness, like, this is awful. This person doesn't want me to exist, essentially. But, like, my duty as a doctor is to take care of this person. And so my priest tells a story about how he cared for that man, knowing what this dude stood for. And that actually, you know, in a way, I think, kind of put that man to shame in a way that, you know, he was receiving care and was receiving, like, you know, the best care from somebody that he hated. And I don't know if the if the end of the story really was that this man was changed, changed, but once he was feeling better and in a position to be able to talk, he was kind to my priest. And so that's a story that I that I carry with me. And in thinking about, you know, this whole compassion thing, again, like I'm thankfully not a doctor and have to be in the position to have to care for somebody in that sort of way. I'm not going to go out of my way to show care and kindness and compassion to somebody who doesn't want me to exist or who doesn't want people that I care about to exist. But also, whenever it comes down to it and it comes down to you know showing the love of Christ to somebody that they are in need 
then then yes, absolutely, I would do that. But I think that my kindness and compassion in the world is better directed toward people who need that compassion. Well, as we wrap up, I did want to come full circle because I keep having this phrase in my head. I've heard it so much about, um, and of course, almost exclusively lobbed at women, of being too much, of taking up too much space. And so as we wrap up, just getting really practical, what are ways that you've worked through? Because again, for I would assume for you with a lot of women I know, that that's not just an external message, but that external message becomes internalized. It becomes the voice in their heads around how they're supposed to show up and there are feelings of guilt or shame or they're sort of internally motivated now to stay small because that becomes the voice of conscience. So how have you wrestled through that? Are there Do you have practical advice or practical ways that you help to fight those demons and, and come out with being able to have a voice and to have that holy hell no in your life? Yeah, so, you know, I think that the world often gives us these messages that we need to make ourselves smaller, that we need to not take up as much space, that we need to sort of somehow kind of like moderate and adjust ourselves. And I think that you're right that those things can become internalized and can really shape, you know, how we look at the world. It can really shape how we interact with the world. Some of the practical things that, that I think are important for people in finding their voice, in being able to sort of stand up against some of those forces, is to really take stock of yourself and recognize what is happening. So many times, you know, people find themselves sort of in like, it's like almost muscle memory, where you're just sort of used to, oh, I'm just not going to talk as much, or I'm just going to wait, or I just got to let the other person talk, or, oh, I'm going to put out an idea. And I just know that that whenever I put out the idea, that 15 minutes later, somebody else is going to come with the very same idea that I gave, and they're going to present it like it was a brand new idea. And so I just have to live with that. And a lot of us learn to accept oppression. We learn to accept those types of things as normative. And so I think that it's important that we actually examine our lives and look at the ways in which we are essentially just saying like, you know, it's okay that I'm being harmed. In what ways do we ascend, not consent. We're not saying, oh yeah, hey, come be harmful toward me. But we're sort of assenting. We're sort of saying, oh, this is happening. Okay, it's happening. And we sort of just kind of go along with it to get along. So whenever people interrupt you, whenever people tell you that your opinion doesn't really matter, that your thoughts don't really matter, what are some of those muscle memory things that you're doing that you're like, wait, other people don't do this, particularly for women. You know, hold on, like men aren't sitting and timing themselves in meetings and making sure that they're not speaking too much. But I'm like, you're trying to ration my participation. Like, I think that we have to look and see, like, what are those things that we see other people doing and they're completely free to do that we feel like, oh, my gosh, I would be so ashamed if I did that. I would be so embarrassed. And I think that often where we find those things, that's an area where we are being locked up, where we're not as free as we could be. And so once you identify that area where you're not as free as you could be, Changing your mindset, changing your attitude, you know, I think that that's even where our relationship with God comes in. That's where we look at how 
our relationship with Christ, where he gives us that ability to discern what the heck is going on in our world, being able to recognize I'm not operating in the full measure of freedom that I could be operating here, and really sort of allowing your mind to be renewed and to be transformed and to see, you know, hey, I don't have to be so wrapped up in the way that I've always been taught that I should move through the world or the way that I've learned that I should move through the world. And so taking those steps to really notice and acknowledge and then to change how you're interacting with the world. Well, thank you so much, Allie, for sharing so much of your story and so much of the lessons that you've learned in this process. It was great to have you on. Thank you again. Thank you. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. All right. So, Jared, with your uh, wonderful discussion with Allie, something came to mind here. I Just thinking about maybe your own experience growing up, and I can think about my own as well, but did your church or your family reinforce the idea that women talk too much? No. No. Well, Good for y- you. Yes and no. And okay. <clears throat> this has been an interesting yes and no. reflection on how I grew up in that I often joke with my mom that she was not a great evangelical. And I appreciate that. So on the one hand, absolutely, the churches we went to would have said that. But I was inoculated from that. Like I had a vaccine against that because I grew up in a family of very strong women. Mm -hmm. Most of my influence was my mom, my aunts, and my sister, all who my sister was five years older than me. My aunts were very strong-willed. So it was not at all practiced in my family system. Yeah. So, so it was it a was, conservative Christian thing. However, right. <laughs> that one part, like it just, they didn't get that memo. Exactly. They would yeah. say it. I mean, it was said like, we, we agree with this theology. This okay, is all right, that's right. taught. And, but it was not practiced. So no, I didn't, in my family, I don't remember ever hearing that women talk too much. So you didn't have that sexist Hang no. up. You didn't grow up with that. Not in the family system I grew up in. Of course, yeah. culturally. And That's again, what I mean. in Just the to church. reiterate, you grew up in Texas. I did grow up in Texas. <laughs> yes. So culturally. What about you, though? Um, you know, my parents were immigrants. And I definitely did not grow up in a household where, like, my mom had to keep quiet. But I, I guess it never came up. Like, culturally for me, I never really thought that women talk too much. You know, I just, it just never happened. And, but, you know, I've had to grow myself in really thinking in a truly egalitarian way. And I wonder why, you know, it's probably cultural stuff like you Mm -hmm. as well, but I wasn't raised to, you know, find a woman who's just going to shut up and marry her. Right. Mm -hmm. It just, that was not any part of my vocab. And I'm grateful for that. It's one less major hurdle in my life to get over. Right. Right. (laughs) But I do think, and in, you can kind of hear it in the episode for me. I'm very passionate about this because I think as I've gotten older, I realized like a lot of women had experiences in the fundamentalist evangelical church that I think in my 20s, I started to wake up to the fact that a lot of women had a very different experience than the family system I grew up in, mm-hmm. where if anything, I was intimidated by the women in my life because uh. they were so strong-willed and, and not in a bad way. Like I respected the hell out of them. So I think I'm passionate about it because I see the damage that is done. And sometimes I'm still, uh, it takes me by surprise when mm-hmm. people tell me their experience. I'm like, oh my gosh, like 
Yeah. I didn't have that experience. That's horrible. Like, yeah. oh, that's not okay at all. So I think it is important because, you know, it may not sound like it given what we're saying right now, but it is rampant in the fundamentalist evangelical right church. And I think one of the things that makes it so sinister is it's actually what you said is like, it's not explicit. It's not, there are, there aren't a lot of systems in churches that are saying women need to be quiet. It's more sinister because it's more implied. It's in the structure yeah, of it's, things. It's, it's baked in more. Yeah, yeah. It's in the subtleties of a meeting mm-hmm. when you just get the sense or when men just talk over you because mm-hmm. you feel like maybe you've taken up too much space or they feel like you've taken up too much space. Your time is done. And so now I'm going to just talk I over you. you. So, yeah. An important other layer to this is the fact that, you know, Allie's not just a woman, but a, a black woman. So this intersectionality of injustice, and she mentioned the racial reckoning of 2020 and people using their voices to say enough is enough with mm-hmm. things like, yeah. you know, police brutality. So one of the questions that comes up often is, are we on an equal playing field? Is it, we just want to blindly bless everybody to have their voice, even if it's a voice of when people are perpetuating injustices. How do we advocate for people to have a voice when sometimes the louder voice are the voices of injustice? It's sort of like, I mean, the classic, should the KKK have a voice? Yeah, exactly. And my answer is no. Good luck enforcing it. But yeah, I feel the same way. Like, does everyone have the right to speak at every time and every moment? Maybe not, but I, I would like to see wisdom dictate people's actions like maybe this isn't the time to say this i might think about read the room kind of thing right i do think about how we might and by we i mean you know mostly white men use our privilege in these spaces to create more space for Mm -hmm. people of color and hopefully we do that some here on the podcast but even in political environments to you know i've just seen more and more examples of this in a way that i didn't fully understand it mm-hmm. maybe in 2016 to 2020 but i've yeah. seen it more of how more privileged people can use that privilege to create a space and then step back and yeah, see, platform that's the others. important part because i always get really uneasy about we will now save you right <laughs> right here here's we are creating space for you you don't need us to create space for you but maybe to support in some way right. by just affirming and and not nobody needs to be defended here. You know, I just it's hard for me sometimes to know exactly how to handle that because it can sound like the knight in shining armor coming in and setting everything up straight. Right. And, yeah, we don't want white savior but we complex. Don't, that's we don't want that. Yeah. But so how do we do that? I mean, that's I think maybe things like this conversations and supporting and pointing out the voices that people might be familiar with and saying learn from them. Right. There's wisdom in what they're saying. Learn from them. And sometimes it takes people that look like us to say that that might alert people. And sometimes it has to cost us something. So I think of the idea, for instance, of, you know, I work a lot in see boards of directors of organizations and nonprofits and for profits. And if you're as a, a white man asked to be on a board, Maybe you say, let me see the diversity of the board. And yep, I'm happy to serve on the board if you bring along a a person of color or a woman of color with me. Which is using the privilege without making it all about you. When it maybe costs you something. Because you may have to say no if they're unwilling to do that. And I think that's an important part as well. Certainly, yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure we haven't had the end of conversations around racial injustice and having a voice. Yeah. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. 
One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Hunning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub.